Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 42, The Day After Cannae. Last time, we covered Rome's darkest day, the Battle of Cannae. On that open field in Apulia in southern Italy, Hannibal wiped upwards of 70,000 legionaries off the face of the earth. Coupled with the defeats at Trebia and Trasimene within the past two years, this final hammer blow should have been the nail in Rome's coffin. But as we will see today, it wasn't. As the sun rose over Cannae on the day after the battle, the victorious Carthaginians beheld a field littered with thousands of Roman bodies and horses. Livy reports that the scene was so shocking that even the Carthaginians were awed by the destruction they had wrought. To add to the otherworldliness of the scene, some of the wounded, roused from stupor by the morning chill, rose from the ground covered in blood. These were quickly killed, along with others who, unable to rise due to their hamstrings being cut, bared their throats to the Carthaginian soldiers and begged to be put out of their misery. Others had preempted this moment by burying their heads in the earth, smothering themselves with dirt in an effort to relieve the agony of their wounds. Signs of the fierce struggle were everywhere apparent and nowhere more so than in the most bizarre spectacle of the entire day. A Roman cavalryman's corpse was found tangled with a still-living Numidian, whose nose and ears had horrible lacerations. His comrades learned that, when the Roman's hands could no longer wield his sword, he had torn at his enemy's face in bestial rage with his teeth. The Carthaginians spent the majority of the day stripping the dead, and burying their own fallen, as well as the consul, Paulus. Following this, Hannibal moved against the remnants of the once great consular army, which had appeared so invincible a mere 48 hours before. But the surviving legionaries who held the Roman camp were in no mood for a fight, surrendering before the first javelin had been thrown. Nearly all were wounded and weary from lack of sleep. Only 4,000 men who, the night before, had the courage to run the gauntlet of Carthaginian patrols in small groups or individually, evaded capture by making their way to the allied town of Cassinum. When they arrived, they found that Hannibal's victory was already bearing fruit for the Carthaginians. After coldly receiving the fugitives, the citizens of Cassinum advised that they could offer protection and shelter for the night, but no more. Not all the inhabitants proved indifferent to the Romans' plight. A wealthy Apulian woman named Busa ignored her fellow countrymen's decision and provided the soldiers with fresh food, clothing, and money, an act for which the Senate formally honored her after the war. This minor incident in Cassinum would prove a microcosm of what was to come. For those Italian allies who wavered in their support of Rome, the presence of a large, thrice-victorious foreign army in their backyard had at last begun to tell upon their loyalty. Despite Busa's generous example, Cassinum, a Samnite city whose people had a long and bitter history of conflict with Rome, would be the first bellwether of shifting allegiances. The battle for the hearts and minds of the Italian allies had begun in earnest. The Italian tribes were not the only ones who had begun to doubt Rome's destiny. When the four remaining tribunes met in Cassinum to discuss their next steps, 
they suddenly received the shocking news that several Roman patricians in their own camp, led by the son of a former consul, Lucius Caecilius Metellus, believed that all hope was lost, and that they should devise a plan to abandon Italy entirely and flee to the protection of a foreign prince. The tribunes heard the news in stunned silence, all except for the 19-year-old Publius Cornelius Scipio, son of the same Scipio who had first sparred with Hannibal in the opening battles of the Second Punic War. Furious at the mere thought of abandoning their home city, Scipio cried out for his comrades to follow him, with swords in hand. When he arrived at the place where the would-be defectors were meeting, he burst in upon them, holding his sword over their heads and crying in the words of Livy, quote, I swear, with all the passion of my heart, that I shall never desert our country, nor permit any other citizen of Rome to leave her in the lurch. If I willfully break my oath, may Jupiter, greatest and best, bring me to a shameful death with my house, my family, and all I possess. Swear the same, Caecilius, and all the rest of you swear it too. If anyone refuse, against him this sword is drawn. End quote. Terrified by the young tribune's menacing rhetoric, the wavering nobles took the oath demanded of them and submitted to Scipio's authority. Thus Scipio, soon to be surnamed Africanus, storms into the limelight of our history. Back in Rome, the city was in turmoil. No firm news had arrived as to whether anyone had survived the battle. Weeping women and other mourners filled the streets with loud lamentations for their family members believed to be dead. The Senate sat paralyzed in deliberation due to the lack of information. At last, Fabius Maximus once again stepped forward, advising that riders be sent out to collect news from any fugitives and learn of the disposition of both armies. The wailing women and all other mourners should be confined to their homes and a general silence enforced. Finally, guards were to be posted at the gates to prevent anyone from leaving the city, reinforcing the belief that their only hope lay in defending Rome. Fabius's proposals were eagerly accepted, and with some measure of order restored, the Senate turned to the crises at hand. These had multiplied exponentially. A Carthaginian fleet was raiding the domains of Hiero of Syracuse. Another fleet stood poised to attack Lilibaeum, and Varro, who by now had joined the 10,000 fugitives in Cassinum, was in no position to offer any serious resistance to an advance by Hannibal. He scarcely had enough men to defend his own camp. Even so, the Senate dispatched Marcus Claudius Marcellus, victor over the Gauls at the Battle of Clastidium, to Sicily to defend Hiero from seaborne attacks. Evil omens also added to the Romans' consternation. The celebration of Ceres, goddess of fertility and agriculture, had to be canceled since no one in mourning could participate in the festival, and at the time following Cannae, every married woman in the city was mourning for the loss of a father, brother, son, or other male relative. In response, the Senate had to cut the time of mourning to 30 days to prevent such a thing from ever happening again. To make matters worse on the religious front, Two Vestal Virgins, who, as the name implies, were required to remain virgins, were discovered to have had an affair. In accordance with the traditional punishment prescribed for such an offense, one offender was buried alive at the Colline Gate, 
while the other committed suicide before she could suffer the same fate. The man who had defiled the virgins was beaten to death before the Pontifex Maximus, or Roman high priest. As we remember from prior episodes, the Romans were a deeply religious and superstitious people. This sacrilege by not one, but two Vestal virgins mandated that the ancient Sibylline books be consulted. Upon their authority, the Romans descended to a new low in their desperation, human sacrifice. Although they and the Greeks had condemned the Carthaginians regularly for the mass human sacrifices held in the temple of Baal Haman, the Romans took a Gallic man and woman and a Greek man and woman and buried them alive in the Forum Boreum as propitiation to the gods. Even the super-patriot Livy could not hide his disgust, calling this act, quote, a most unroman rite, end quote. On a lighter note, the Senate also dispatched Quintus Fabius Pictor to Greece to inquire at the famous Oracle of Delphi what the Romans should do. As we remember from episode 30, Fabius Pictor's account of the Second Punic War would go on to form the basis of many of the histories which followed, including those of Polybius and Livy. Having supposedly placated the gods, the Romans then turned to their city's physical defenses. Marcus Junius was appointed dictator to supervise the recruiting of new soldiers. With approximately one-fifth of Roman male citizens already dead by this point in the conflict, desperate measures had to be taken to refill the ranks. The enlistment age was lowered to 17, with many even younger than that joining the legions. Due to the arms shortage, the spoils of former wars were taken from the temples where they had been dedicated and given to these new recruits as weapons. In another unprecedented act, the Senate purchased 8,000 healthy young slaves from their masters after questioning each whether they would be willing to serve, further highlighting the dearth of free citizens available. In all, by scraping and scrounging, Rome managed to raise four legions, a force deemed sufficient to defend the capital. One other ready source of manpower remained untapped. Following Cannae, Hannibal had released the Italian prisoners without ransom after speaking kindly to them. Similar to his plan in the aftermath of Trebia and Trasimene, he hoped that this act of generosity would leave the allied cities more favorably disposed to his future overtures. In a break from his previous behavior, he also gave the Roman prisoners relatively moderate terms, telling them that he was not in Italy to destroy Rome, but merely for Carthage's glory and empire. Having given this speech, Hannibal arranged to send a delegation of ten men from the prisoners under Cathalo to Rome to negotiate a ransom. All that Hannibal required from the ten prisoner envoys was that they would swear an oath to return to his camp. One of the ten delegates, on a pretext of having forgotten something, went back to the Carthaginian camp to retrieve it, thus technically discharging his oath. When the delegation arrived outside Rome, it met with a cold welcome. The dictator's representative politely told Cartholo that he should leave Roman territory by nightfall, but the prisoners were granted an audience with the Senate. In a heart-rending speech, the prisoners begged to be delivered from the hands of the Carthaginians, saying that they had fought well until the bitter end, that their capture had been unavoidable, and their current conditions in captivity pitiful. 
They reminded the senators that Rome had ransomed prisoners before, in both the Gallic and Pyrrhic Wars, and those ransoms were even more shameful since the soldiers in those cases had fled the field. By contrast, the prisoners of Cannae had held their camp until surrounded and cut off from every retreat, and they were still zealous to fight for their country's cause. According to Livy, the envoy even gave a pointed jab at Rome's new army of boys and slaves. Quote, you are enlisting for service men of all ages and all conditions. Eight thousand slaves, I hear, are being armed. We prisoners are no fewer, and we could be ransomed for a sum less than the purchase money of the slaves. But I should be insulting the Roman name if I compared ourselves with them. End quote. The envoy concluded his speech by imploring the Senate to ransom the prisoners, lest they suffer slavery or death at the hands of the barbarous, quote-unquote, Carthaginians. At the close of this appeal, the multitude of plebeians who had made their way into the Senate chamber cried out to save their sons, brothers, and kinsmen who remained alive, while the women in the crowd wept and held out their arms towards the prisoners as if to embrace them. The senators themselves were not unmoved, and once order had been restored and the crowd removed outside, many advocated that the ransom should be paid. Others said that it should not be paid from public funds, but that private individuals and families should be permitted to ransom their own with state-backed loans if needed. Just as it seemed like the prisoners would attain their freedom, Titus Manlius Torquatus rose to speak. We have already met Titus's ancestor in episode 31, where that Titus Manlius killed a Gallic champion in single combat and then ordered the execution of his own son for breaking the bonds of Discoplina. Given the track record of his forebear, it is no surprise that the current Titus Manlius was famous, some might say infamous, for his severity. Why, he asked the envoys, had the prisoners not tried to fight their way out of their camp during the night following the battle? Such a feat was not impossible. Their very own comrades had managed to escape to Canusium by their own courage and fortitude. Indeed, the prisoners had not only failed to show the requisite vertas to save themselves when they had the chance, but they had even tried to prevent their companions who wished to hazard the escape from leaving. Following this, had they indeed defended their camp? No, they surrendered before a single Carthaginian had set foot on the ramparts. Like an expert prosecutor, Titus continues in the words of Livy, quote, While you are safe and free, that is the time to see your country again. Nay, rather while she is your country and you her sons. Now it is too late. Disgraced, disenfranchised, made slaves of Carthage, you long in vain. Do you think to buy yourselves back to the place you lost by cowardice and crime? You turned a deaf ear to your fellow countryman Sempronius when he bade you take arms and follow him, but you listened soon after when Hannibal called for the betrayal of the camp and the surrender of your swords. So you want me to ransom you? When duty demands that you force your way out to freedom, you do not budge an inch. When military necessity calls for you to stay firm and defend your camp by force of arms, you surrender everything, your camp, your swords, yourselves. In my opinion, gentlemen of the Senate, these fellows no more deserve to be ransomed than their brave comrades who fought their way through the enemy and by their heroic courage restored themselves to their country's service deserve to be handed over to Hannibal. 
end quote. When Titus Manlius retook his seat, everyone knew that the prisoners were doomed. Livy reports that it was not only the ancient Roman custom of showing little mercy to her own prisoners which influenced the senator's decision, but also the more prosaic reason dealing with the sum of money involved. An enormous sum had already been earmarked for the purchasing and equipping of the slave legions, and though the prisoner's ransom was cheaper, it would entail giving money directly to the enemy, who, by all reports, was in dire need of cash as well. Thus, the Senate coldly refused the ransom and sent the delegates back to Hannibal. When the senators discovered that the one envoy who had cunningly fulfilled his oath by returning to the Carthaginian camp had returned home, they sent a guard to arrest the offender and bring him under escort back to Hannibal's camp. There would be no mercy or pity for those who failed the Republic in her hour of need. The twin incidents of Scipio and Titus Manlius give a glimpse into the Roman psyche following Cannae. For the Romans, raised on the traditions of their forefathers who never gave an inch to the enemy, it was inconceivable to even consider surrendering control of the land they had fought so hard to conquer, where other powers, Carthage included, could be brought to the negotiating table under sufficient duress. Roman doggedness was something strange and unfamiliar to the post-Alexander world. It was a lesson that Pyrrhus had learned to his cost, and one that his fellow Diadochi kingdoms in the east would discover themselves after the Second Punic War. Born in the cauldron of the Italian wars, Roman grit was a key factor in the city's rise to dominance over her neighboring peers. It would also be what would save her now in her darkest hour. The Senate's gruff response likely shocked Hannibal, who, raised in the Hellenistic tradition of warfare, likely believed that Rome would have been ready to negotiate. Indeed, his overtures to ransom prisoners was probably intended to be the first step of peace talks, since such exchanges often signaled the beginning of negotiations. The relatively moderate terms he proposed seemed to invite discussion. From what we can piece together from his speech to the Roman prisoners and his later treaty with Philip of Macedon, more on that in a future episode, it seems clear that Hannibal at this point, far from imagining the leveling and salting of Rome herself, merely wished to relegate her to a regional power in central Italy, freeing the Italian city-states to the north and south and returning Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica to Carthaginian rule. Such terms and diplomacy would not have been considered outlandish if he had been negotiating with a normal 3rd century BC state. The successor kingdoms to the east, for instance, regularly ceded territory between themselves in their more formalized world of warfare and statecraft after it became clear who was on the losing side. Besides, most ancient states could not survive one defeat, like Trebia, Trasimene, or Cannae. Hannibal had inflicted not one but three decisive blows on Rome, and to his mind, he had every reason to congratulate himself on the imminent closing of the war. His surprise and anger must have been great then, when instead of agreeing to negotiate, Rome closed her gates to his envoys and refused his terms of ransom, publicly signaling her determination to see the war through to its bitter end. Unwilling to bear the burden of feeding the thousands of Roman prisoners, and with no ransom money in sight, he executed some and sold the remainder into slavery. Having vented his pique, 
Hannibal now had to determine what his response would be. Marhabal's words, if they were ever uttered, would likely have come back to him now. He had lost precious time in the prisoner negotiation with the Senate, but there was still an opportunity for him to besiege the capital itself. Livy claims that had he done so in the days following Cannae, the city must have fallen. Other historians, past and present, have agreed with Livy's assessment, but the countervailing view has also been vigorously supported. After Cannae, Hannibal's men and animals were exhausted. His own casualties, proportionately at least, had been significant, and Rome was over 200 miles away from Apulia. Once he arrived at her gates, a four-mile-long wall made of limestone surrounded the city, with stone towers and earthenworks at regular intervals. Two city legions and detachments of marines manned those walls, besides the inhabitants themselves who could be conscripted during a siege. In all, the taking of Rome herself would have required a monumental effort and a well-trained force with powerful siege engines and clear supply lines. Although Hannibal's army was perhaps the finest in the world, he arguably lacked the equipment and security needed to take the city. Rome's fleet still controlled the sea, despite minor challenges by the Carthaginian navy, and her armies, though battered, could still operate in Hannibal's rear in the event of a siege. But the question remains, should Hannibal have marched on Rome after Cannae? Hindsight is 2020, and there are strong arguments for both sides of the debate. Indeed, the dilemma of Hannibal's choice became a standard debate topic for Roman schoolboys learning rhetoric, and that debate has raged all the way down to our present day. Whether Hannibal could have taken Rome after Cannae is something we will never know, but the fact that he did not attempt it would mean that Rome was given the chance to fight another day. That window, if it had ever been there, had closed, and Hannibal would live to rue the day he let Rome escape his hand. For all his brilliance as a battlefield tactician and strategist, and he had few equals and arguably no superiors, Hannibal deeply miscalculated the Roman spirit if he thought the war would conclude with Cannae. Instead, it would now shift into its second phase, the battle for individual Italian city-states and allies, in a struggle that the historian Richard Miles aptly dubs the Road to Nowhere. Next time, we will cover the Italian quagmire before turning our eyes seaward to the explosive developments in Spain and Sicily. Until then, take care and read more history.